Welcome back to the Brew Theology Podcast. I don't even know what episode number this is right now. I think it's 112, but we're back with Dr. Pam Eisenbaum. And if you don't know who Pam is, just go back to episodes 64, 65, and 66, which we recorded, last, I think, a year and a half ago or yeah, it's oh, been 13, a while. 14 months ago. And that was on Is the Bible True, which is a really bad question. And that's why it was a good title. Uh-huh. And see, and, and then she's she was back. I think you were back a month later. You were. I was filling in for somebody. I was your second choice, but um, yeah. somebody uh, didn't show I'm, up. The, the fact that the fact <laughs> that you were again. the fact that you were invited choice. back is a big thanks. So there you yeah. go. So sixty eight right. and sixty nine. That was Paul was not a Christian. Yeah. But it's been a year since then. And I I told everybody at the pub last week, no one's ever been invited twice, much less three times. So this is going to, we don't know how many episodes this is going to be. Right. But we're excited tonight. We're going to talk about Judaism 101. And what you think you know about Judaism, put that on the shelf. Put your little listening uh, headset on and an open heart, open mind, all that good stuff. So we're going to have fun. A few announcements before we get going. We have some events coming up. One of them is going to be in the end of March. Janelle and I will be at the New Story Festival, yep. March 29th through the 31st. That is in Austin, Texas. Yay. <laughs> We're excited about going back to my hometown. Have you hung out in Austin before? I've never been to Austin. Oh, barbecue, Texas Hill Country. Texas barbecue, though. It's the bomb. <laughs> if you like... What are like, the dates again? March 29th through the 31st. Okay. So it is the inaugural event. A lot yes. of our friends from the Wild Goose will be there. Mm-hmm. And that's why we thought this would be good for brew theology. So we'll have a booth set up and we're presenting on Saturday. And we'll have a new colored co- koozie. We will. I, I we think will have new stickers and new pens. And the color is going to be What about purple. those coasters? Purple. The coasters. And coasters. Okay. Yes, Pam has told us we need to get coasters. Yeah. So we'll be looking <laughs> into that. We're also going to speak into the Wild Goose. We're going to be back there. That's July 12th through the 14th, I believe. Just go to Wild Goose Festival, Google it. We'll have a booth. We'll present again. I think we're going to do more of a demo as well. Yeah. That's just, that's just a fun, I mean, it's just like a bunch of progressive Christian hippies and people who are off any kind of Christian reservation who are accepted in this inclusive camp of weirdos and doing art and justice and music for three, four nights. Yeah. Is that... Is that's that what the New Story Festival no, is or with no. the Wild Goose? This is the Wild Goose, and that's going to be uh, in Asheville. Well, not Asheville, sorry. As, near Asheville. Near Hot Springs, Asheville. North Carolina. Yeah. Okay. And what is the New Story Festival? It is a, an, another sort of progressive Christian, but yet inclusive festival uh, for people who but are telling. But it's in the city. Yeah, it's more of an So ur- we don't exactly know what it's going to be like. It's like Wild Goose, but you're not camping. Yeah. So those who don't like to camp are <laughs> so happy. So I don't know if that means there's no silent disco, and if there isn't, that's a problem, but we'll see. But come join us. Come see us there. And then we have an event on May the 4th. May, that's an easy one to remember. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> May the 4th be with you, and that's at Platt Park Church in the basement. Good friends over there are letting us use their venue. Seedstock Brewery is going to provide the craft beer. We have six different faith leaders from Denver. Rabbi Brian Field, Reverend Diana Thompson, Reverend Amanda Henderson, Dilpreet Jammu, Vednanda, and last but not least, Ishmael Akbulat. If you remember that, he was on our podcast just recently. So that's on May the 4th. Just go to our website and then you can click on that link. Speaking of the website, brutheology.org. All your information's there. If you're like, what, what are these people about? This is your first time because you're yep. clicking on this episode because you're into Judaism 101. Just check us out on the website, social media, Brew Theology, underscore on Twitter. The rest is just Brew Theology, Facebook, and Instagram. Anything else? I think that's it. Correction. It's Brian Feld. 
I'm assuming we're talking about the same guy. You pronounce it Feld? Well, I'm pretty sure that's how he pronounces it, but I'm we sorry, should Brian, double check. <laughs> but if you're listening right now, yeah, Brian Feld. Yeah. I apologize. See, this we, we've never actually sat down and had lunch. Okay, so we are going to talk about Judaism 101 with Pam, and there's a lot of places where we could start. I'm here with Janelle and Heather. Heather's here with us for the first time. Are Welcome. You, yeah, this Welcome, is going to be fun. Thank you. I'm very excited. You know, because we've done this with Pam two different times, I was telling Heather, I have no idea how long this is going to be tonight because we're already comfortable with each other. This could go on and on. And we got the tequila flowing, so we're good. So, so Pam, you brought up Rabbi Akiva in podcast we've had before and at the pub. And so I, I'd like to bring up just because he is the classic, most favorite, famous rabbi of all time, some would say. There's the story where he, um, he's a shepherd and he's middle-aged. He's around my age, I think. He's in easy 40 at this point. Tending his flock and he goes over to the brook for some water, drinks some water, and then he notices some, a drip of water and it's laying on this stone, this massive stone. And then he looks on the stone and it's got a hole in the stone from the drips of water. And then he wonders to himself, like, wow, like, could uh, something as hard as my heart be softened the way that this stone has softened from this drop of water over and over again? Could my heart be softened if I started studying and reading Torah? And so he, before it was his wife, this woman, Rachel, was his master's daughter. And she comes over and he asks her that. And she said, yeah, sure. You know, you, uh, if you study Torah long enough and hard enough, you won't be as ignorant as you are right now. And I believe in you. I don't know how she says it. Uh, and then so he goes off and he, be, he studies to become a rabbi, has 24,000 students, Talmudim, disciples, becomes the greatest rabbi of all time. Um, so because we're talking about Judaism tonight, and this is going to go in many different directions, I'd love for us to start off with the intensity of the written Torah. As, as somebody who um, comes from a Christian tradition, and then I know that Heather and Janelle, we all come from the Christian tradition, tradition. You know, we were always taught that, you know, the Bible is the word of God and you should learn it and all that. But from my understanding, there's a different level of intensity when it comes to Judaism and specifically within rabbis that really starts with Rabbi Akiva and moves forward. So can you just talk more about living the text, breathing the text, memorizing the text, dying with the text? What, what does that intensity look like within rabbinical Judaism? Wow. Okay, there's a question, but I'm really glad we started with a question about the Torah, because if you had to pick, you know, the center of Judaism that's pretty much consistent um, throughout its history, it's the Torah. I guess the Torah is to Judaism what Jesus is to Christianity, I, I think. Um, so, okay, uh, where to start? So, uh, let me say this, for example— um, there's a wide variety of synagogues of Jewish, not, not as wide a variety as there is in Protestant Christianity, by the way, where there's 300 plus denominations, right? Thousand. Or that, is that what, okay. Yeah. Last time I checked, it was 300, how quickly things uh, <laughs> divide yet again. Um, but so in Judaism, there are kind of four or five main movements. And then of course it can vary locally, depending on the rabbi and the community. Um, I have never been to any brand of Judaism, you know, any synagogue under any label that didn't read the Torah in its service and didn't, and they all had at least one Torah, or if they were a very new congregation, their priority was to raise money 
to buy a Torah, even if they're the most progressive, um, you know, barely believe in God, or in the case of the atheist synagogue in New York City, uh, don't believe in God at all, the Torah is central. Uh, And study of Torah, and even all the texts later, that we talked about some the other night, the Mishnah and the Talmud, I'll just name two, and then there's various books of Midrash. Um, All these relate to the Torah. They they relate back to the Torah. So, um, it's Torah, Torah, Torah all the time. But let me say this. One thing that is uh, very different about Jewish attitudes toward Torah than, say, Christian attitudes, and here I'm going to speak even um, pretty generally, not necessarily evangelical Christianity, is for Jews, you have to have The Torah is always exactly the same Torah in writing. So I'm not talking about translations, but in a worship service, it has to be on a scroll. It's written, handwritten by a scribe. Every letter is copied exactly. Any mistake, you have to cut it out and reattach another section. Um, So it's always exactly, perfectly the same. How you interpret the Torah, relate to the Torah there's room for a great deal of creativity. I feel like, again, this is an overstatement, in Christianity, it's almost the reverse. So there are, if you just look at the manuscript traditions, there's a lot of variations in how Bibles are copied. Um, There was never any aversion to translating uh, the Bible into any language you wanted to, uh, in any format you wanted to put it, in any substance you wanted to put it on. It, It didn't... It, there really wasn't an idea of the writing being holy. At the same time, what you claim to th- that it meant, highly regulated. <laughs> so there's almost an inverse relationship there that I find particularly interesting. But I mean, I don't know what to say much what much more than what you just said, and that is that the Torah is at the center of Judaism. As a naive young pastor, this was 11 years ago, I was in South Beach for a a short season, and we were um, next to a Chabad center, and I'm I'm finally into like Judaism for the first time, which is funny because my whole faith had been deconstructed just a few years prior to that, realizing that Jesus was a Jewish rabbi. I'd like to hear that story sometime, <laughs> by the way. Is there a podcast on Ryan's I, No, story? There's, there's not, but... Uh, It'd we, be worth yeah. doing. So I walk into the place because I'm fascinated with just um, the devotion. Because it's one thing for us to think that we have devotion in the Christian tradition. I'm mesmerized by like, what is Jewish devotion like? So there's this young... A uh, young man, probably, um, I would say, like, late teen, and then there was probably somebody in, like, their mid-20s, and they're the only ones in this room with all these books everywhere, and they're staying up, and they're, what is the, is it called? Davening. Davening, yeah. right, back and forth. Okay. Or, right. And I, I didn't know, like, okay, take off my hat, uh, what do I do when I walk in here, and I'm, do I raise my hand, do I knock on the door, because they're completely immersed in whatever they're doing. Right. So finally, the, the young one, probably the 18, 19-year-old, looks up. And he, you know, he, he tells me to come on over because he could tell some Gentile. Yeah, has no like, idea what's what, going what, on. Yeah, there's some tourist in South Beach. <laughs> and I, I was just like, so I'm just curious. I mean, um, do you um, are, are you are you studying Torah right now? 
He's like, and he looks at me like it was the dumbest question <laughs> in the world. But he, he says, yeah, of course. I go, so then like, are you interested in being a rabbi? And he says, well, we're all interested in being a rabbi. That's <laughs> our life. Mm-hmm. Now, growing up, Having been a youth pastor, having been a youth in a youth pastors, youth ministries, none of our students ever would have said something like that. And yet in this Kavad Center, yeah. I'm not sure if it was Orthodox or what, but mm-hmm. um, there was a devotion and intensity that I saw just having walked in that I've, I'd never seen in my entire life, which I respected. But it starts with the written Torah. Yes. So you have to memorize and that. And just learn. Right. So to, it's a, I went to a lot of religious school, um, raised... Um, mostly in conservative synagogues. And I went uh, three or four days a, a week. We moved a lot, so it depended where we were. And a big part of it is just memorizing. So the first thing you have to do is memorize the Shema, which is a lot longer than what people think it is. It's three paragraphs, not one. Um, then a bunch of Psalms. Then parts of the liturgy. And this is even... Um, you know, what you could fault it for is you're often not talking about what it means. But recitation often means, especially when you're a young person, that it's with you forever. I can just rattle off these passages. It's just with you forever. And what's interesting is I don't meet many Christians. I think you'd see it more in evangelical Christians where they study a lot and so they do know certain biblical passages, but I don't know if there's any deliberate attempt to memorize, to have it written on your heart, so to speak. So there are Jews today who even at my synagogue where we're pretty liberal, if if I'm if I invite like Mark, my husband, Gentile Mark, whose field is Hebrew Bible, who's come to the synagogue to talk many times, if people have a question about a passage, they'll just rattle it off in Hebrew. And they'll know, and he'll be talking about a passage, and the wording will remind somebody of another passage, the wording in Hebrew. And so then they'll ask him about that text. And he'll start to feel like, this is this really lefty congregation who collectively probably knows the whole Torah by heart. No, I mean, it is astonishing even So we're talking me. Hebrew and English. Yes, right. They would note it in, in English as well. But the Hebrew, um, now there's lots of us, in, including myself, a good part of Hebrew school was just learning Hebrew without learning how to, it, it wasn't the normal way to learn a language, without learning what it meant. Um, unless you went, after I was bat mitzvah, there was sort of elective Hebrew school and I wanted to get this fellowship to go to Israel, and there was like a requirement of how many more years you could do it. And then we started learning Hebrew like a real language. Um, but it was just so important to learn how to read it, write it, and recite it without even necessarily knowing what it meant. It was often later in graduate school when I become an academic. I'd go to synagogue again, and we'd be saying something. I'd be like, oh, that's what that, that's actually from Isaiah 2. I never even realized it at the time. Um, there are just, or rabbinic sayings. I later learned, oh, that song is from Hillel, one of his famous sayings. Like, there were lots of things where I learned them, but I didn't know what they meant. So that would be, you know, you know, a problem with that sort of religious school. At a place like Chabad or a more orthodox synagogue, they're going to they're going to do exactly what I described, but they're going to, because they devote so many hours to education, they're going to learn also what every word means. But there are good parts that my father, who was raised 
you know, went to a lot of school where he can recite even more than I can, but he, it's, he only has a vague idea of what it means. So, but it is, um, in Judaism, study is worship, right? And then reading from the Torah and having it interpreted is a big part of worship. So Jews often refer to when the rabbi talks after the, the Torah study as a sermon now, because there's a lot of cross-influence, right? There's a lot of influence of Christian practice. Um, we have seminaries now. Rabbis have to be ordained. Jews learn that from Christians. Rabbis were ordained by other rabbis who decided they were ready to be in charge, that they knew enough they could you know, be a leader. So there's a lot of cross-influence there. <clears throat> But essentially what you're supposed to do is at, um, there's, there's some services that are an exception, but any Shabbat service and most other holiday services, there's a reading of the Torah, and then either the rabbi talks about it, or in my synagogue, we have what's called, and in fact, it's typically called, it's not in Hebrew, it, it's not called a sermon. It's called the Devar Torah, which just means the word of Torah, meaning the word of Torah interpreted now so in my because my synagogue is so small we have a torah discussion and it lasts for as long as we want it to last and then we resume i mean usually somebody says you know it's time we better wrap this up but um we've said prayers before and we say a few prayers afterwards but generally that is the culmination of the service so you're right and if you're an orthodox jew practicing all the time your life is defined by study of Torah and reciting prayers at certain times of day. Yeah. Here's what I would love to do before we dive further into this oral Torah, which is married to the written, and which is so it's so it's so I'm important gonna... to, to talk about those two together. But before we do that, I think that as you're a history buff nerd, yeah. and I think those who are listening who either have no idea or have a vague idea. How did this begin? I know there's there's this date 70 AD. If we could move there in a little, you know, short synopsis of how did rabbinical Judaism with the intensity of Torah come to be as you had the temple in Jerusalem, something happened which some people know. Can you just go from there? So you asked me about uh essentially um just giving a quick snapshot of this really important point in Jewish history where we sort of shift from what I've often called, called the religion of Israel, to rabbinic Judaism. And so, yes, the Jews have this uh, war with Rome, which is a pretty brutal war, and uh, they put up a pretty good fight. In fact, Jews, it's something of an embarrassment for the Romans. It takes three years um, for the Romans to um, reconquer the Jews and put everything back in order. It's talked about a lot in Roman sources as well as... Um, Jewish sources. Uh, so, uh, and they destroy the Jerusalem temple. That had happened once before, um, 500 years before, but more than that, but um, it manages to get rebuilt. In this case, of course, the temple never got rebuilt. And um, there are a few different reasons for that. Um, one is there are also two more wars, and the Romans put their thumb down on Judaism pretty hard, uh, and it's, it's pretty hard to recover. Uh, there's another war, um, um, it's ca sometimes called the Bar Kokhba 
revolt or the Hadrianic War, and that is when Rabbi Akiva is alive. And um, that's 132 to 135. This is just so 100 years after Jesus. And in some ways, that war is the ones where the Romans have just had enough, and they they just they rename Judah Palestina, so that that's why Palestine becomes a common name for that area. Um, they they just sort of try to de-Judaize things, but in the meantime, um, Jews are still around. They recongregate in certain areas, and so there's in particular, a tradition that rabbis go to the north, to the region of Galilee, to a to a town called Yamnia, uh, Yavna in Hebrew, and this is largely thought to be legend in its particulars. But something like this basically happens. They they go north, an academy is sort of started there, and eventually Judaism really begins to flourish much farther east outside of the Roman Empire. So to to the east, former Persian area, the, the Romans never really get beyond um, essentially the land of Israel. Um, so why, so, why do the Romans allow them to go up to the Sea of Galilee area and do this, if that's not too far from Jerusalem? Right, right. Well, in rabbinic literature, and again, it's really hard to... Uh, to, to, to extract fact from fiction in rabbinic sources. But essentially, the way the rabbis tell it, um, they and lots of other Jews didn't support this rebellion. They thought it was really stupid. There's now, after the war, there's really no leaders of Judaism. And um, this is also the transition from when we stopped talking about Pharisees to start talking about rabbis, Later, if it's interesting, I can. Uh, we don't know exactly why, but I can talk about that a little bit more at some point. After the year seventy, there's this guy named Judah the Patriarch, and he comes to be the Patriarch comes to be the language of a Jewish leader who can interface with other empires and negotiates sort of things. And there's actually lots of stories of key rabbis like, you know, having dinner with certain famous Romans, which I doubt really happened. But um, they essentially just, you know, kind of wanted to do their own thing and weren't interested in rebellion and whatnot. So it's probably the case that the Mishnah itself is codified. So the rabbis, or excuse me, the Pharisees we know in their own time are intense studiers of Torah. And so they're a particular sect. But once things kind of fall apart with, and things are chaos anyway, rabbi just means teacher. And the Pharisees gain, Pharisees now turned, yeah, let me just call them Pharisees for the moment, gain some authority because they're knowledgeable. There's people who can adjudicate when there are disputes. So people start going to them. So there's... Um, there's a way in which there's no monarch anymore. There's no temple. There's no temple priests. There's no there's no center of gravity. And so it it really takes hundreds of years, really, before the rabbi before everyone sort of looks to rabbis as the center of gravity. I think early on the rabbis think they are, and some people acknowledge that. 
But we also know that there are some synagogues where, because um, we have inscriptions, the leader of the synagogue isn't necessarily a rabbi. It might have been an ex-priest or something like that. But I think it's just a natural evolution because they become experts. They develop a kind of expertise. It's highly, highly professionalized. Um, it's highly professionalized. And and by the way, you mentioned earlier when you went to the Chabad house and the people you met said, we all aspire to be rabbis. Um, in the ideal world, everyone, even if they have another profession, is also a rabbi. So my father's best friend, who became a famous doctor, actually a, a toxicologist, uh, in his family, all the men, and he did it too, went to rabbinical school after college for five years, and then he went to medical school. So, And by the way, you become a rabbi if you just graduate from rabbinical school. So there's no other ordinate, uh, at least in, in American Judaism. Um, and because being a rabbi is about knowing Torah and knowing the rabbinic tradition. It's not about being good at pastoral care. I mean, seminaries now do have requirements in pastoral care. They also learn that from Christians. And they, they've learned that other things might be important for leading a congregation. But basically what makes you a rabbi is someone who knows the sources of Judaism, the Torah being at the center. So most, any rabbi you meet, and they're all required to spend time in Israel and have fluency in Hebrew, ancient, and modern. I mean, it doesn't matter how lefty they are. So I, I sometimes have little patience with my United Methodist students who aren't retired, required to take Hebrew or Greek. And so I have to do a sales job when I teach them intro to kind of convince them, you know, you're never going to really know it if you don't take Greek, uh, the New Testament, or take Hebrew, learn the Old Testament. Because that sort of language learning, that's just not, is not important. It's not as important a thing in Christianity because I think what's understood is the message of the Bible can always tra transcend any language. Whereas there's this sense in Judaism that Everything we do beyond the written Torah itself is an act of interpretation. So if you want to do that act of interpretation, you have to know the Torah itself as the starting point. And that's also dangerous, too, with languages, because what's translated into English, the word in Hebrew could mean three, four different words. Mm -hmm. And yet we translate it into the one word that we mm -hmm. think is the, oh, it's, it's yeah. the heart of the message in this one word in English right. in the 21st century. Yeah. So here's, here's a question for a lot of evangelical Christians out there that ask this all the time. And I get asked this a lot. I'm sure you probably have too. So the sacrificial system in Jerusalem is no longer, it's, it's no longer there. That's right. Cause you were only supposed yep. to sacrifice in one place at the Jerusalem temple. Sacrifice isn't going on in synagogues or Jewish houses with the exception yeah. of Passover. You could uh, sacrifice your own lamb for dinner. That's the only sacrifice like your ordinary, ordinary Jewish family. So the question that I get, I don't know if you guys ever get it too, is where do Jewish people get their uh, atonement? So back to Yom Kippur or, or Passover, all these, all the sacrifices that are at the temple, where is that in their relationship with, with God? And I can probably have my own answer, but I'd love to hear yours because I get this one all the time. Yeah. Uh, no, it's a, it's a fair question because it was the defining, in fact, everything else you did, uh, um, uh, 
celebrating a holiday, prayer, saying a psalm, those aren't acts of worship. The only thing that counted as worship was offering a sacrifice. Okay, so essentially what happens is, um, and what I mentioned to you before about um, Judah, Rabbi Judah, Judah the patriarch, um, there's a famous story of his disciples asking him, so the temple's just been destroyed, and presumably they've kind of migrated to Galilee or whatever, and they're all in a state of lamentation and grieving, and his disciple asks him, well, what do we do now? How, how, would, we, how would we worship God? And, and he basically says, um, um, he basically says, prayer and acts of loving kindness are the equivalent or better than sacrifice. And that's rooted in your biblical text, right? Right. There are those you, um, you if you're, you're familiar with your Bible, right? I don't desire sacrifices. You get in the prophetic literature. Um, I think Hosea, maybe Isaiah. I'm not going to remember which prophets go on about that, where the sacrifices are really an expression of repentance and whatnot. And what's most important is whether you're really repenting. One reason I think the whole system works and survives the destruction of the temple is certain revolutionary theological ideas about sacrifice are already operative before the temple is destroyed. Interesting. So, yeah, they're like diaspora Jews and others who never saw the Jerusalem temple. They're supposed to make pilgrimages, and a lot of them speak about it respectfully. But um, more and more synagogues and others, uh, you know, groups are beginning to think, God, that they have a, there's what's sort of called a democratizing movement already going on, that all of us can be close to God. We don't need a priest. This will sound a bit like the Protestant Reformation, but um, the particulars would all be different. But I think theologically, it's the same critique. Furthermore, in the first century, uh, in, in the first century before Jesus and the first century of Jesus' century, first century CE, the temple is a very corrupt institution. So you get all these critiques about it. Again, same thing with Luther and the Catholic Church. That's a period in which there's a lot of corruption around money and whatnot. So in the period of Jesus, um, priests aren't even appointed in the way they're supposed to be appointed according, according to Exodus and Leviticus. Um, the Romans get to pick who the priest is because the priest becomes basically a political position. So a lot of Jews are kind of like, you know, the temple isn't really representative of us. So there's already a movement afoot. So when it's destroyed, uh, don't get me wrong, that's a huge, huge, I don't even know what the equivalent would be for a lot of other people. I mean, it is, it is hitting it at the heart. So, and it was a magnificent temple. Herod builds this magnificent structure. So it's famous in its own day for non-Jews. In fact, there's a court just for the Gentiles. They can't go beyond a certain point, but it becomes a kind of tourist destination. That's how impressive it is. So um, uh, if you've been to Israel and seen the Western Wall, that's just a platform supporting the temple. That's not even a wall of the temple. It, and it's utterly huge. And you can only see a small, only a small portion of it is above ground. It goes way, way deeper. So it's huge. 
So I don't know if that answers the question entirely. I think that's, that's great and then some. Yeah. This is a rabbit trail hole here, but so when, when Jesus in the in the Gospels flips tables in the temple, yeah. would this be applauded by Jewish people today looking back and even modern, no, say ancient Jews as well? Um, I think for a lot of, a lot of them, yes. Uh, so for example, in the Gospels, in all the Gospels, just some worse than others, um, a lot of negative things are said about Jews. There's a particular problem in the Gospel of John where um, it's the Jews did this and the Jews, right? And so that often then got extrapolated to all Jews, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so nasty things are said about them, um, in, in, including one where Jesus says some particularly nasty things to them in John 8. If you compare what the Gospels say about Jews they don't like that are Jesus' enemies to what the people who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls say about other Jews that they consider their enemies, oh, it's, it's just like polite language in the Gospels. They call them all sorts of things. And um, the, the main scholarly explanation of why this community of Jews uh, we call them the Qumran community. Qumran is a place in the desert, in the Judean desert. Why this community of Jews um, takes root in the desert there and then produces these texts, which we now call the Dead Sea Scrolls, is that a group of priests, who, when things started really getting corrupt and bad and whatnot, they, in protest, leave. They claim the presence of God does not exist in the temple if the temple's not a holy place, so God is not there anymore. They go to the wilderness, and um, this community exists in continuity for a couple hundred years. And there are, um, there are clearly priests or ex-priests there, and for the most part, we think they don't they they don't make sacrifices there though. Though some recent scholars have said there've been found some animal bones and maybe they were offering sacrifices, but generally there there doesn't there's nothing equivalent to the temple or anything like that. Um, and we we know what sorts of prayer and what sorts of things they had to do, and sacrifices are not mandated. So they already these are people at least their leaders were priestly. And they think God has already abandoned the temple. And why do they go to the wilderness? You, you meet God in the wilderness when you don't. Th- Jesus goes to the. I mean, this is a age preach. old tradition. This is an age old <laughs> tradition of you know if you've kind of lost your way and where God you you reconnect with God in the wilderness, and so that's where they go. And, and amazing too. There's mikvot everywhere, uh, baptismal ritual waters mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in the desert. That's what blew my mind when I went there. Yeah. Like, how, how in the world, in this ancient sort of land, and it's still even today modern, like, why would you have that much baptismal waters? Yeah. But that was a big deal. It was a very big deal, and they even have to create, it, uh, it's, it's sort of um, hydro engineering at its best, because um, in mikvaot, to be, now this is already post-biblical tradition. You always have to, there's lots of places in the Bible where it says to, if you've been in an impure state to get back to purity, you bathe, you wash. Washing is an important way to transition from one to another. But the whole, um, what's called a mikvot, a ritual bath, and how it's supposed to work and all that stuff, um, uh, it starts to form according to post-biblical, uh, it's not just rabbinic, I'll just say post-biblical, the oral Torah at work. Um, and 
They have to create a system of what to collect the water. I mean, if you think about it, here these people are desperate for drinking water. They have to figure out ways to collect enough water to maintain ritual baths of some substantial size, as well as collect water for their cisterns so they have drinking water. So we could learn something from the environmental efficiency. It's not like you're living in Portland or Seattle. No. No, I think there's less. What do we have like an average of 11 to 13 inches of rain here in Colorado in the Judean desert? I don't know what it is, but it's less. Um, it's considered a more arid climate. So, and if you've been to the Judean hills, you know, there's nothing. There's nothing there, it's right? It's painful. Yeah, there's barely any sagebrush even there. And, you know, in our deserts, you can see some sagebrush, but yeah. But how amazingly intense to leave your occupation because it is so corrupt and to choose a place like that and yet yeah, to still be life. as devoted as you were, if not more. Yeah, that's right. Right. And then, that's right. So anyway, when I tell my students, you know, Paul, so here's an interesting thing, my favorite person from the first you, century. You like the Paul? Oh, Paul. So, somebody wrote a book about Paul. I don't yeah, know who no, it was no, around no, this table. I love the Apostle Paul. I uh, He's more interesting to me than Jesus, partly because... He left us writings that I can study, whereas Jesus obviously preached a lot and said things and people wrote it down, but his own personal voice isn't there, right? Yeah. Um, Paul only mentions temple once. He never mentions the Jerusalem temple. You wouldn't know it existed. In fact, I once ran across some cockamamie scholar who said, Paul must have lived after, everybody's got the dating wrong. He lives way after the destruction of the temple because he never mentioned it. And all Jews, the temple was at the center of their identity. I'm like, no. So he he's a diaspora Jew. He doesn't mention it. Now he mentions, he uses the word temple in uh, 1 Corinthians. I'm pretty sure it's 1 Corinthians when he talks about your temple or your body should be a temple that you keep holy. By the way, just a, a plug for my own scholarly argument on this. Most scholars interpret that to mean your own individual body should be kept in a state of, you know, purity. Um, and, uh, it, it, you know, as an honor to God. I think actually what he means, because he's talking a lot about the community there, that when they meet as a body— um, to celebrate the Eucharist or to do or to pray or to do anything, they're effectively like the holy temple. I think that's what he means there. So there are ways in which people started to talk, and then this is rabbinic language that when 10, in their case, 10 men gather, the presence of God is there just like. God was in the temple. So it's an amazing reorganization. And if, if religions don't have some sort of, I'm going to say this, a blanket statement, some sort of um, theological modes of adaptation that work at the point in time in which there are historical crises or other forces, those are the religions that are just going to decline and then yeah. disappear. So there has to be, um, and, and there's ways, there are moments in which um, Christianity, I think, coalesces in ways where it has certain adaptability. I love, though, uh, that you say you feel like temple refers to the, the body that meets together, because that, to me, sounds way more consistent 
with Judaism and where he came mm-hmm. from than this, the way that we, many evangelicals have so individualized that statement and yeah, so use that as a control factor for judging purity, judging belonging, right. judging a whole bunch of things by saying, well, you're not pure, your body's not pure. Um, where if we were to apply that to our churches, a lot of us would be in a lot of trouble. That's right. Can, can I say one more thing about purity? Because I think yeah. it's one of the most misunderstood things about Judaism. Um, there is, uh, and I'm getting this particular language from a particular scholar named Jonathan Clowens, um, because it's a good way to talk about the two different kinds of purity. Um, there's moral impurity, and moral impurity, so um, let's just talk about the Hebrew Bible for a moment, but yeah. it carries forward. Um, moral impurity is when you do really bad things, like you've worshipped other gods, um, you've rebelled in certain ways, you've committed bloodshed in certain ways, so idolatry. There, there's there's sort of just a few things that make you, and it's always commun- It's a communal sin, it's not an individual sin. Right. And just because right. there's one individual in the group who might become go and worship Baal, that's not going to get God pissed off enough to destroy everybody. But moral impurity, so sin and moral impurity can sometimes be the same language. So, in other words, um, impurity, and gosh, the Hebrew word is suddenly slipping my mind. Um, the 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 word impurity in some cases, can be equated with sin and certain severe sins. But most of the time that Jews talk about purity and impurity, both in the Bible, early rabbinic Judaism, and today, the people you met at the Chabad house, purity and impurity have absolutely nothing to do with sin. They have to do with um, certain understandings of holiness and separating off um, one some space and time from other spaces and times. So I I do. Um, so I think, for example, I, I think certain um, Christian feminists early on in my career in biblical studies who had critiqued Judaism, early Judaism, for seeing that that laws of menstrual purity were signs of just how bad Jewish attitudes were toward women, forgetting that also uh, certain male excretions also make you impure. And I think purity, impurity like that is weird, but people also know it's a natural, women have menstruations. There's There's nothing sinful or inherently evil about a menstruating woman. So it's just certain ideas that are kind of hard to understand when you're not inside the logic. I mean, this is a, a, a thing you separate out and probably because blood is a is a source of impurity and certain other kinds of bodily fluids are ejaculation. By the way, childbirth, childbirth, one of the greatest gifts of God, you're in a state of impurity after you give birth. So I'm not to say, this is not to say that Judaism was an egalitarian religion in which... <laughs> I wouldn't want to be heard to say that, in which men and women were treated perfectly equally. But I'm just saying, I find there's often a confusion in the mind of non-Jews that when Jews talk about purity and impurity, they're associating certain natural things w- with sin um, and or petty things, and that's crazy. Why would anyone do that? So that stereotype can kind of 
exist. And so I just, I wanted to say something about that. You mentioned, so in there you said something about purity has more to do with spaces. Can you say more about that? Space and time. So if you're in a state of impurity, um, so let's say, so having sex, um, after having sex, you're in a state of married people. After having sex, you're technically, according to what we sometimes call Torah law, the written Torah, as well as the oral Torah and rabbinic tradition, all the you're in a state of impurity. There are two ways to move back to a state of purity. One is washing, and the other is time. So a certain amount of time has to elapse. I don't remember what it is. I think it's only 24 or 48 hours in the case of um, sexual activity. I think that there's, there's no rational reason that you couldn't worship God uh, a few hours after ejaculating. But like a lot of religions, there's a certain logic that there's a bodily whatever going on, and you need to be in a different space, in a different moment when you're in the presence of the holy. So certain things that are normal human, but they're very human things are for human time are for, are for just, uh, yeah. So Shabbat, Shabbat is the most famous kind of thing. Shabbat is like a timeout from human life. And the um, what's the commandment? It's, it's not, you know, you shall not work on the Sabbath day. The main, I mean, there is laws about that in the Torah, but right. the main thing is you shall observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And this idea of holy is creating um, a time that's separate from other time. So there are just, there's a way in which it's purity and impurity are in order to have the holy presence with you, you have to be in a state of purity, which often means that certain kinds of ordinary human things that go on, because God is not at all human in Judaism, uh, you need to segregate or separate yourself from that. It kind of means to separate, actually. The word purity and purity means to carden off one thing from another. So if I if I can continue on this and, and no this this is good I I, I was actually, I was going to bring this up anyway but if I get the Shabbat I, I understand that 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 makes sense to my modern Western thousands of years later mind I'm putting that in there by the way because we can't go back two thousand plus years uh, right right but That's true. you know uh, what about God the, the Spirit of God the all being present in these human things that God gave humans. Is that, is that, is that an understanding within Judaism? Yes. Yes, okay. absolutely. Okay, I, I just want to make sure people didn't yes, that's misunderstand. Right. So, and of course in, in the religion of the Bible, um, the religion of Israel, God is described in very human ways, mm-hmm. right? God walks around mm-hmm. on the earth um, with, with lots of figures with Adam and Eve in the garden with um, Abraham. God, um, is described, there's the, uh, God rescues um, uh, the Hebrews from Egypt with an outstretched arm. There are all, God sits on his footstool. God, post-biblical Judaism, partly under the influence of Greek philosophy, but then this pervades all Judaism afterwards, is 
God, those are, those metaphors in some ways become problematic Mm -hmm. and people really want to make sure, you know, these are just metaphors. God is not like, is nothing like a human, um, to use the language of a 19th of a 20th century Christian theologian, God really is holy other. Um, so, but you're right in the Bible. God is very, uh, what do I want to say? Human like, and it's understood that humans are made in the image and likeness of God. And there's gobs and gobs and gobs of exegesis about what that means. Um, and it's particularly interesting because in the Greek, um, the translation of image, which and the Greek Bible becomes the Christian Bible, is the word for icon. So certain theologies of iconography and the way you can represent mm-hmm. things um, are partly rooted in a rationale of that verse. Talk about the importance of what does translation. image mean in. It's, it's interesting that, so the rabbis, and um, I'm not going to be able to draw off the top of my head all the midrashim, but but one of the things that preoccupies them is whenever the Torah says something twice, t- t- has one point, but seems to use two words or two phrases to make one point, in rabbinic interpretation, nothing can be uh, superfluous. So... They ponder there must be two ways in which we're like God. And they ponder all sorts of ways. But one of the things they're very keen to point out is that God doesn't look like us. Except I did talk about Jewish mysticism um, in our in our session. Um, so so there are deviations from that, but sort sort of in you know mainstream rabbinic Judaism cannot think of God as the old man up in the clouds sitting on a throne kind of thing, or you're not supposed to. 